Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Lightning fans, you found the right show for everything you need to know about your favorite team in the NHL. It's the Lightning Insider Podcast with Eric Erlinson. Get ready for insight, historical perspective, interviews, and breaking news that comes from a reporter insider who's got near 20 years on the Tampa Bay Lightning beat. Now for the latest with the Lightning, here's Eric. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Lightning Insider Podcast. I am Eric Erlinson from lightninginsider.com, also the author of Lightning Strikes, Unbelievable run with Stanley Cup Championship and Tampa Bay Lightning. Want to check that out? Along with my partner in crime, Greg Linelli from Lightning Power Play and Lightning Radio, pregame, postgame, and intermission host for all Lightning Radio broadcasts, is with me. And we're coming at you now after a three game set against the Chicago Blackhawks. A important set, I think, on a, more than a few levels that will. Certainly get into, uh, among other things, of course, we'll take some of your questions as well towards the end of the show. So always a fun part of the segment. And with that right now, I'll bring in Greg Linelli. And Greg, uh, interesting three-game set against Chicago Blackhawks. And I wanted to get your take on it right off the bat here. Yeah, good to be with you again, E. I know we've got a lot of questions that are coming our way via Twitter. So we'll get to those later on in the show. And people want to know about the back end and health of certain players. So that'll be a lot of fun. The initial thoughts were just a couple. One, Chicago much improved since the beginning of the year. I think that's one of the things you take away from it. And as we sit here right now, I think you can make an argument. The four teams that are right now occupying a playoff spot in that central division probably make the playoffs. Although, you know, Columbus, as you and I were talking off the air, may have a say in that. We'll see how this develops. But I, I feel like Chicago is an ascending team. They're getting better, and they've got a couple of guys who are, are still out of the lineup that probably can help. If they get goaltending, and I think that's something we can dive into uh, in this show as well, if they get decent goaltending, they may get that opportunity to sneak in these, these playoffs here and be one of the top four teams because I, I like the way they played. I thought at times they made the Lightning a little uncomfortable. And to the Lightning's credit, this is the second point, they found different ways to win. And it amazes me, you know, some, so often when you're coming off a championship, you understand that you're going to be taking the other team's best shot. And I think for Chicago, they probably viewed those three games a little differently than Tampa Bay did. They probably had something to prove and they wanted to measure themselves against arguably the best team in the league. And with that all being said, Tampa Bay found a way, found a way to win two out of three, which I thought was pretty impressive because we, we talked so much about what the other team does and how they looked really good, but there was the lightning taking arguably their best shots <laughs> the games and finding a way to get points in all of them. And yeah. I thought that was impressive. I, I think, you know, we can talk about individual performances, I'm sure. But I think from a, a macro perspective, from a team perspective, I think that's hard to do. 
when the other team views these series, these games, probably more uh, than than you, and they they value them a bit more than you do, to be able to take those punches and still come out and and get points more than the other team, I thought was pretty impressive. And that those are two of the takeaways, big picture that I will store in my my little uh, message bank here, memory bank, and and see how that all plays out. But uh, kind of impressed with both teams, I'd say, is is how I would, would read that. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. We saw this with Florida earlier this year too, right? Like Florida treated that first matchup between the Lightning and the Panthers as their, for lack of, lack of a better phrase, Stanley Cup game. That was a Stanley Cup championship game for Florida. They wanted to come out and play like it, and they did, and they took it to Tampa Bay. They didn't. Lightning didn't have the right response. I think in this situation, Chicago still has some championship pedigree. They're still Duncan Keith. They're still Patrick Kane. They're still, you know, part of that team that won their last title in 2015. They've fallen on harder times here for sure. Uh, I agree with you in the sense that they're an ascending team. I would be interested to know how Chicago would fare under a normal season, under a normal circumstance, Uh, but that's a debate that will never be settled. Uh, But they do look a ton better than they did back on January the 13th and 15th when they were here at Amelie Arena take on the Lightning to open up the season. The Lightning just had their way with them. Maybe a second period of game two, Chicago had the better of the play, but the Lightning were already up to a big lead at that point. So they have definitely rebounded their game. They look a lot quicker. They look a lot hungrier. They're hunting pucks a little bit better, uh, actually a lot better than they did early in the season. You know, and they look, they didn't win any of their first four games. So you thought, okay, this is going to be a long season for them. They've done a great job of turning it around. The Lightning didn't see Kevin Lankinen in either of those first two games. They saw Colin Delia and Malcolm Subban in games one and two. Um, so that I think that, that factored into it. Uh, but Chicago wanted to prove something this weekend. They wanted to go toe-to-toe with the defending ch- champions, try and prove something, not necessarily to the Lightning, but to themselves, that they could skate and they could play with Tampa Bay. And I think they did that. My thing with Chicago, they don't have anywhere near the depth that the Lightning have. They really have to rely on Kane, DeBrinckit, and Kubelik in particular, and then Duncan Keith on the back end. And they got a spectacular goaltending performance out of Subban in game two. It's the only reason that game got to overtime. It's the only reason that game got to a shootout. Curtis McElhinney had something to say with that two in that shootout game, especially a couple of stops on Patrick Kane in overtime. Um, but I like they're an ascending team, but Chicago was not anywhere near Tampa Bay's level because let's face it, there were points in these three games where the lighting were like, just kind of playing. They weren't really playing their game. Uh, certainly in the first game, the lighting probably got away with a little bit on the buzzer beater overtime goal from Alex Kamor played a much, much better. Actually, they, they tracked 49 scoring chances, which is a large number. It's the largest number that Tampa Bay has put up in two and a half seasons in terms of scoring chances and the blues in that game. And then I felt in Sunday's game, the final of the three, when the lightning decided that they were going to be hungry again and started, you know, winning more battles, the game turned in a hurry, falling down three, nothing, come back, tie it, end up scoring six unanswered goals. So Chicago is an improved team, but I think Tampa Bay proved they're the better team. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you even mentioned the goaltending and while I think it is improved and Subban played really well, and Lankin and Lank the Tank, as I guess they refer to him as the <laughs> uh, 
you know, I, I still think that is a question mark. And in the big picture, too, in this division, really in the league, but I think especially in this division, I mean, he, we, we've kind of mentioned this on the show before, but Andre Vasilevsky's head and shoulders better than everybody else. Yeah. You know, Chicago had pushes when Vassy was in net, and McElhaney was really good, too, in his start. And he was just, he's a wall. He doesn't let the game get out of reach. You know, it, it was a 3 nothing game on Sunday afternoon, and, you know, they had some opportunities, even when Tampa Bay was chipping away and chipping away. And, you know, even when it was 5-4, you saw Chicago have another push and the lightning started turning the puck over. I mean, Vasilevsky or, or was five, three Vasilevsky was really good. And I thought a couple of the goals, particularly short side on Lankinen on Sunday, um, he could have been better on, um, you know, the Palat goal was a great shot, but again, short side Gord, same thing on his second goal. You know, those are ones that I think for the above average goaltenders, the ones that are going to steal you games, you got to come up and you got to make those saves. And uh, he didn't while he was better than I anticipated. I don't, you know, look, they get into a series with Tampa Bay. I, I don't think it's going to end very well for them, but I think it speaks to how good he is, meaning Vassy and kind of where everybody else is with their goaltending, because you know, they, what's the, what's the famous saying in the NFL? If you have two quarterbacks who can play, that means you probably don't have one. Yeah. And I think for Chicago, I think they like what their goaltenders possibly could do, but I'm not sure they've settled on a guy who can be you know, a workhorse for them. And I honestly, I think you can say that just about for every team in the Lightning's division that right now are contending for a spot. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, goaltending, Tampa Bay is far and above um, anybody. Like, I, Can you sit here and say anybody else in this division has a bona fide number one? I don't think I mean, it would be Ben Bishop. It would be Ben Bishop, but he's hurt. Yeah. And I mean, actually, I think if you go around the league, I I think you could probably make the case right now that Marc-Andre Fleury is comparable to Vassy because of what I mean, he's pitching some shutouts there. He's been really good. But I would still take Andre Vasilevsky. Now, it's not to take anything away from Flower because he's won cups. He's been a number one goaltender. He still is. And maybe the the talent gap isn't as great between Vassy and flurry but i mean those are the the two goaltenders who i think are playing it at such a high level right now i'm not sure it's even close i'm sure we're missing a couple but i mean it, it probably speaks to the fortunate situation tampa bay is in with Vassy. but i think it also this would be an interesting study interesting storyline the the lack of game-changing goaltenders right now in the national hockey league i find it really fascinating and uh, I think it's going to be the thing that keeps Carolina from advancing because I think they have a really good team. You know, we just talked about Chicago. I think Columbus is a little bit hit or miss. And we've talked about Florida. I mean, these are the teams that are competing for a spot. And I'm just not sure they have confidence in their guy, particularly if you're taking on Tampa Bay to win a, a seven game series. Yeah, first of all, the irony with Mark Andre Fleur is he wasn't even supposed to be the number one going into the season, right? I know, he was supposed I know. to be wrong there. Right. And of course he gets injured and, and Andre Mark Andre Fleury takes over and he's, Great. he's playing lights out. Yeah. He's uh as much as we've talked about Vasilevsky MVP race and certainly Vezina, uh you can make an, an argument right now for Mark Andre Fleury as well. Although I think some of the advanced numbers will tell you that um Vasilevsky is doing better in what he's performing, but that's kind of splitting hairs when you're talking about what those two have done this year, but you're, you're right in the division alone. I, I mean, Florida's supposed to have the guy, but he can't wrestle it away from Chris Dreger. And if you're Sergey Bobrovsky and you're getting paid the money he is 
getting paid to, and you can't wrestle the job away from Chris Dreger, that's that's kind of a, a, a telling statement about what kind of a year he's having for this team. Uh, Carolina, even with Morazic, he's not a true number one. Him and Reimer split games when he's healthy, and Morazic looks like he's getting somewhat close. He's back to practice with the Hurricanes. Uh, they're and they, you know they've won five in a row as we talk here right now, so they're still nipping at Tampa Bay Seals, but they have goaltending questions. Uh, Chicago, we just mentioned them. I mean, as good as Lankin has been, his save percentage is hovering around 925, which is pretty good. And he's not a young player. He's 25 years old. He's played professionally in Europe for a number of years before he came over. Uh, but is he a bona fide number one? No. Is Malcolm Subban a bona fide number one? Not even close. Uh, so as you start to go down the list, and, and you can make comparisons and kind of uh, X and O, all the differences and the similarities and who has edges and special teams. The Lightning just have a huge edge in goaltending. And no matter who they end up facing in the playoffs, that's going to give them a marginal advantage and yeah. make it tough on any other team to consider uh, doing any sort of an upset. I mean, the Lightning would have to really play down uh, to a level that they haven't been at in a couple of years to have any issues when it comes to uh, postseason play. Yeah, and, you know, let, let's be clear. I mean, we have seen the Lightning have some breakdowns defensively this year. And it's not obviously as bad as what we saw a couple of years ago when defensively they were playing very loose and they expected Andre Vasilevsky to make big save after big save every game, which he basically did. It eventually caught up with them in the playoffs. And, you know, we've, we've talked about some of their struggles before they broke through and won a Stanley Cup last year. The goaltending situation, to, to give you an idea of where the goaltending situation is in the NHL, and I, I want to give credit because I believe it was Elliot Friedman in his 31 Thoughts column. It might have been his most recent or the one previous. But he basically mentioned keep an eye on Darcy Kemper as a guy that some teams are going to target at the trade deadline because the thinking is, you know, is he wasting away in Arizona who's having a good year, but so is everybody else in their division. And we know that they were penalized for some things they did around, what was it, either draft, the draft or they, yeah. they lost some draft picks. So they want to get acquire more draft picks. And, you know, there's some talk about uh, Ekman Larson being dealt as well. But Kemper was somebody he mentioned. And I don't know if he had him going to Carolina or if that was a team that was going to make a push for somebody like him. Look, I, Darcy Kemper, I think, is a, is a good goaltender. But if he's your most coveted guy on the market, yeah, it probably speaks to where the market is right now. And I, I've never been a huge fan, and I think the stats bore it out since basically since the lockouts up until recently. Goaltenders who won Stanley Cups weren't making over $6 million a year. Yeah, It's the most important position, but it wasn't paid like one. Yeah. Vasi obviously changed that. And I, a couple other guys, Bobrovsky, you know, they thought in Florida was that guy, but that dynamic is always interesting, but I think it also speaks to where the league is with goaltenders and the lightning have found it with, or they did find it with Bishop and then Vasi. I mean, they've had a league goaltending for a while now, but maybe we have to start looking around the league and saying to ourselves, you know what, that, that might be the one position where there's just not, a lot of elite talent. And I don't know what the reason is he for that. 
but it it's I find, I'm curious if you think that because I'm I'm looking at it and I'm thinking that's that's a good point. There's there's some really good goaltenders. I don't know if there are many elite ones though. Yeah, there probably isn't. And and sort of the irony of your statement there about goaltenders not making over six million dollars. Guess how much Andre Vasilevsky made last year when they did win a cup? Three point five. His new contract had not kicked in yet. Isn't that amazing? He, he you know that it, this is the first year of that extension that he signed where he's making eight point five or nine point five. Um, so obviously that's a um, a huge a huge. Uh, I think Holtby pay. I think Holtby changed that. Um, he was kind of added because I think when he won the cup, now remember he didn't start the playoffs as the guy for the Caps when they won it. Um, he eventually got that position back, and then Washington wins the cup. And I want to say he was making over five or six million. But the bottom line is, if you go back and look at the goaltenders who have won it. There haven't been many who have made more than five and a half, six million dollars, but it's arguably the most important position in the league. I mean, here we are talking about the Lightning and what they have, and probably the biggest reason we like them, not only because they're deep, although I think in, in some ways that's going to be tested coming up here on the back end. And I think we can get into the fourth line discussion too, because I think that's a, a pretty fun debate. But we're talking about the Lightning being really good and having a really good chance to repeat because they have an elite goaltender for these other teams. We're saying, yeah, they got some pretty good team. They have some pretty good players, and they're much improved. But do you think they're going to beat Tampa Bay in a seven-game series with that type of goaltending? I just I think it's going to be hard. It is. He would have to have a series like everybody had against Columbus two years ago, not bring up horror memories but plenty of fans listening to this, but that's what yeah. I would have to take to defeat, I think, this team in the playoffs. I mean, you know, you can't account for injuries and knock on wood uh, in that situation. But uh, it, it, it's always an interesting debate with the goaltending because every team will now tell you that they need to have two, especially in a year like this where the schedule is condensed and, you know, you got games stacked up on each other. Everybody needs two uh, good goaltenders. Um, you know, you can't rely on one to carry the load. I mean, we just talked about it. I mean, the, the game against Chicago was the 10th game in 16 days uh, for the lightning, which is a, it's a lot and it's not going to alleviate uh, lighting up here for, for a bit. So you need two goaltenders. And I, and I think teams are just hesitant to pour that much money into that position when you have so many other areas that you also have to pay. I mean, just think about this team. You know, okay, you're 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 paying Andre Vasilevsky nine point five, but you're also paying Nikita Kucherov nine point five, and you're paying, you know, Victor Hedman seven point nine. You're paying Steven Stamkos eight point five. Uh, next year, in Brain Point's final year of his contract, he's in the what is he in the eight million dollar range? Yeah, uh, I, I think in his deal. So you know, you've got a lot of guys that you have to pay, and teams are just hesitant to pour that much money into a goaltender, despite the fact that you have to have a high quality goaltender. You can't just have an average goaltender and great players around him because that average goaltender is going to give up a goal at some point that's going to cost you. Uh, so you have to, it's, it's an interesting debate that teams have every year and front offices have every year. How much do you pay? But this is where you have to get the lightning credit. They did not hesitate. Julian Griswold did not hesitate to give Andre Vasilevsky that big money extension. Uh, he earned it. There's no doubt about it three straight years as a Vezina finalist. He won the Vezina trophy uh, already. And he's still only, what is he, 26 years old, 25 years old, where a lot of goalies don't even hit their peak until they're 28 or so. So if you want to look at it that way, there's still a ceiling for him to reach in terms of where he's going to go for his 
first play. Uh, but it will be interesting, as we've talked about for a few years now, how this team divvies out the salary cap dollars down the road with so much poured into to, to one well, position. Important right. to one position. It's a good point. You're right. And, you know, I think to be fair, for how good Vassie has been, for how good Ben Bishop was, they didn't win a cup until they complemented their elite goaltender with structured play. And when I say structured play, it wasn't because they were loose all those years. Like, you know, they weren't listening to the, the coaching staff or they didn't have a plan in place. I don't know what the reason was e for the team clicking the way it did last year compared to previous years. I mean, I think they knew they needed to be better defensively. I think some of that was a perfect storm of things that went right. The motivation to come back and do things the right way after being embarrassed in the first round of Columbus. I, I do think there is that factor that played into it. But I also think they had better players on the back end, but the team was more committed defensively and they were better defensively in front of Vasilevsky. Would they've won a cup without him? I I don't think so. Neither do you, but I think we could also make the case. They wouldn't have won a cup if they weren't committed defensively either. And so there were, there was kind of that perfect storm. That's why I think this team is so hard to beat. And just going back to the Chicago series, they were mentally stronger too. You know, there, there were some moments there where Chicago had the momentum or whether we're going up three, nothing, or it was, you know, Victor Hedman making a play late in overtime with Kalorn tipping it. As Brian Angblom has said, you can't really describe it, but certain players on this team after winning the cup, there's even more swagger to them. Victor Hedman comes to mind, probably Vassy. I think also to Alex Kalorn. For whatever reason, winning the cup for them, especially Hedman, justified the accolades he had been given. And I think they have taken their game to another level. But also you get the sense if this team is in a seven-game series, at least this is my hope, that if they have some bad fortune, they're not going to crumble right away. That they're going to find a way, whether it's that same game that they trail or if it's the series where they're down, that you feel pretty good that they're going to find a way to come back and win it. They may not, but I think that's what happens when you win a cup the way they did. You give them that benefit of the doubt. There's an understanding of what it takes to win. Exactly. And there's an understanding of, okay, things might not be going your way. And, and look, this is absolutely the lesson they learned in that series against Columbus. And they part last year, uh, even through all the disruptions and everything else. The seminal moment in this franchise's turnaround under this current regime and this core of players happened when they were up 3-0 against Columbus in game one of a series that they were heavily, heavily favored to win. You race out to a 3-0 first period lead, and you're trying hard to score the fourth goal. Hard to score the fourth goal. You're pressing for the fourth goal. You don't need the fourth goal. And the, the comments from John Cooper after that game are going to resonate with me forever because he said exactly that. We tried too hard to win that game for nothing, full knowing that we didn't have to. We already had the game. We just couldn't do the things that we did to put ourselves in position to let Columbus come back in that game. And then they looked shell-shocked. They didn't know how to handle it. For a team that had been through so much, and had done so much winning without accomplishing the goal, 
Now they've accomplished the goal. They understand now what it takes to win. And because of that series against Columbus, the pressure, I don't want to say the pressure's off, but it's not as strong. There's not a fan base clamoring. What's wrong? How come you can't win? You're too good. You're supposed to be this next team. Nobody's had the success that this team has had without winning a cup. Now they won a cup. So now, again, I don't want to say the pressure's off them, but they're, they're going out and playing with a different type of arrogance, the right kind of arrogance, because they just know they have what it takes to win. You're not going to win every night, right? Like just, just this series this weekend against Chicago, they didn't play very good in game one against the Blackhawks. They found a way to turn it up in the third period, score two quick goals, tie that game, get it to overtime, and end up winning on a fortunate bounce. Game two, they turned it up. They were ready for it. You didn't win the game, but you put yourself in position to win the game. And that's how – that's playing winning hockey, and they know how to play that type of winning hockey. Even falling down 3 nothing on Sunday afternoon, there wasn't panic, right? That's, we hear that a lot. John Cooper, when we ask him these questions, what was the bench like when this situation happened? Well, we didn't panic. We just went out and played our game. We understood the situation and we're not helping ourselves, but they just went out and played. And that's where I think that championship experience, having done it before, understanding what it takes to win and that every loss now is not the end of the world and not every win is playing the parade. They, they've figured those, those things out. And I think there is an air of confidence, an air of championship aura that this team carries about them now because they just know the situation and how to handle it better than they did even just two years ago. It's a good point. And, you know, let's also factor this in as well. I think Steven Stamkos is having one of his better years when you talk about the totality of his game. And I think one of the reasons is because he is motivated. At least I would think this is me just guessing, but he played how many minutes? In the playoffs last year, was two minutes two and forty-seven seconds of glorious hockey. Yeah, and I think he wants. I think he wants to make a bigger impact, obviously, than what he had. And I think he's he motivated to get back there and to really be be a part of of what this team can accomplish. So I, I think you have that factor because I think he's been phenomenal. You know, in the Chicago game on Sunday, I mean, he was winning faceoffs on the power play, which led to some goals. They were four for five on it. He's he's having a very good year for a player who. You know, sometimes you see somebody his age with those injuries, you start to see the play decline. I feel like he's playing his best hockey. You're seeing John Cooper try and mix things up with the lines, not to keep things stale. Some of it is out of necessity, but others he's trying to mix and match and give guys opportunities to play with one another that they typically wouldn't, i.e. Braden Point and Anthony Sorelli together, which I find pretty fascinating. I, I think also, too, you're using the rest of the year to see what you have in Cal Foot. I think if you want him to be part of your top six, this is what the regular season's for. Certainly that's taken a bit of a hit, not his play, obviously, but the back end, which we will get into in just a little bit here. So there are some things that can keep them motivated throughout the regular season into the playoffs that can help them. And then I think they're, they're, they're trying to find a combination on this fourth line that is, I, I think, kind of intriguing. Now, look, we're talking about the fourth line and, that means things are going pretty well for you. But man, fourth line made an impact last year. And I, I still don't think they know who's going to be that third wheel to Joseph and Maroon. I think Joseph's going to be that guy once Cooch gets back, assuming everything falls into place. And you know, whether he's the centerman or not, I, I don't know. My guess is they would probably keep him there. But 
let's assume it's Joseph and Maroon. I think the question becomes who plays with those guys. And it may be a revolving door. Maybe all all the way through the playoffs. I don't know. You know, maybe it'll be just competition. Whoever's playing well gets gets an opportunity to play. I will say this, out of everybody they've thrown out there, Jamel Smith is the one that has given me the most consistent production. But I don't know if they want to give him that opportunity fully because you're still seeing Volkov get those opportunities. He's had some flashes. You've seen Colton, Bari Boulay, and that's fine. And then, you know, if Mitchell Stevens gets back and is ready to go, that's fine too. But if you're asking me, I, I'd actually like to see a fourth line of Smith, Joseph, and Maroon, and let's see what you have. But it, it, it looks like I think they probably want to give it to Volkov. I'm not sure I'm ready to make that commitment just yet. Here's the thing about the fourth line. And this is something I wrote several weeks ago, just after Mitchell Stevens was injured. This is a fourth line that has had an identity for a number of years. And an identity started with Cedric Paquette. Yeah. Love him or hate him. And he didn't give a lot of offense, but you knew when Cedric Paquette was in the lineup what you were going to get out of him. He's going to be somebody that can agitate. He's got some sandpaper to his game. He gets in on the fourth check. He's going to kill some penalties for you. He's not there. And the fourth line had success because there was some pretty good chemistry and, and at least the way that Cedric Paquette and Pat Maroon last year approached the game was very similar. Now you've got a fourth line that started out the year with Mitchell Stevens, Matthew Joseph, and Pat Maroon. And it's the old Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the others. And that's not a knock on Pat Maroon, but the strength of Mitchell Stevens and Matthew Joseph is their skating, is their speed. It's not, it's not the same type of identity. And here we are, March 7th, as we sit here and talk, there still isn't an identity to the fourth line. Some of that is because Stevens got injured. Uh, some of that is because there are business things that get in the way on why Jamel Smith has only been able to play the games that he has to this point because he was up on an emergency recall because of injuries to remember Sorelli missed a couple of weeks and then Stamkos missed those couple of games against Florida. Um, you know, so he has to, if you, you can only call him up on an emergency basis because you can't send him back to the taxi squad unless you put him on waivers. So that gets into the way of that on um, those salary cap implications, all of that, because I think when the fourth line has worked the best, it is when Jamel Smith was out there because yeah, he he's got some speed to his game. He's not Matthew Joseph fast, but he's got some speed to his game, but he's got grit to his game. He can, he's got, he's what's, what's the phrase. He's just got a, a, a thick body, right. For somebody who's about five eleven, yeah, he, he gets around the ice, but he knows how to use, you know, what he has, you know, about 205 pounds. He knows how to use that in those aspects of the game to watch him in wall battles. That's where you look for those situations with players like that. I think he fits an identity of what they would like that fourth line to be. I think he fits more with Pat Maroon than anybody else that's played on the fourth line with him this year. So here we are now still talking about a line that doesn't have an identity 
because we knew the identity the past five, six years as Cedric Paquette has been a mainstay as that fourth line center. And he's not here anymore and they haven't adapted to it yet. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I, I don't want to, you know, when you're talking about the fourth line, I think for the most part, people will look at that and say, well, you're talking about the fourth line. I mean, that, that must mean things are going really well. And they are. But we also know that this is a four line league today. And John Cooper likes to have confidence in those guys. So it's an interesting dynamic compared to what we saw last year. I mean, Joseph wasn't in the lineup during the playoffs. Maroon was. Paquette's not here. So in essence, you're trying to fill two more spots on a very important line with Pat Maroon. Now, we think Joseph's taking those steps. And I think he's motivated enough to have an impact or to make an impact and to keep improving based off of what happened to him last year. You know, Mitchell Stevens, I didn't see enough in his, his time before the injury to give him that spot as the centerman on that fourth line. And I understand faceoffs was a pretty big deal as to why he had that position locked down, but you need to do a little bit more offensively. I think um, you mentioned Cedric Paquette. He would chip in eight to 10 goals a year. I don't know if we're going to get that from Mitchell Stevens. Time will tell. I didn't see it this year before he was injured, quite frankly. And I think you bring up a good point about Smith and his contract because I didn't even think about that. And I, I think that is something that needs to needs to be talked about probably a little bit more as to why maybe we're not seeing him. Now, E, I'm assuming come playoff time, that goes out the window. Correct. He's the guy that they you know could go with, and maybe that's what they do. But... You know, the Volkov experiment, for whatever reason, there's just there there have been too many games where I haven't noticed them. And Colton and Barry Boulay, I just don't know how many realistic chances they're gonna get on that fourth line. Not to say they didn't acquit themselves well, but they've only played one game. To me, Smith makes the most sense. And if you were to take his contract out of the situation, which I know you can't do, I think you're probably looking at Maroon Smith and Joseph, or you can flip Joseph and Smith and, and go that way if you really like Joseph as your centerman. I think that's their best fourth line, assuming they don't go out and address it at the trade deadline, which they may do, but that would probably involve trading out a player as well, so it gets a little, little tricky too with the cap. But to me, I think that's their best fourth line, again, assuming that they don't go 11-7 and seven too. That's something we also should keep an eye on as well. Well, and that's where, well, first of all, the reason we talk about a fourth line and why the coaching staff needs to have trust in them, it's not because you count on them from offense. You'd like for them to chip in. They can't hurt you defensively. And the more you can trust a line in that situation to be on the ice more means the less taxing it has to be on your top players because you want your top players as fresh as possible for the postseason. You know, you don't want to have to play Braden Point 22 minutes a night. You know, you don't want to have to play Steven Stamkos 22 minutes a night. They can, and they're capable, but as we've seen this team do in the past, they'd like to, they'd like to not overburden their top guys in the regular season. That's why a trustworthy fourth line, I think, is important for this team. Because as it is now, I mean, during the playoffs, you were seeing Maroon and Paquette, those guys were getting, you know, 11, 12 minutes a night. Right now, it's maybe eight, maybe nine depending on the situations. I mean, the fourth line today uh, or on Sunday, as we're talking about it here, um, you know, didn't see the ice much. I mean, Alex Volkov played under seven minutes. 
Matthew Joseph played just over seven minutes. Uh, you know, and Pat Maroon gets a little bit of power play time, but he was at eight minutes, just six, six and a half minutes at, at, at five on five play. You need more out of that. And that's why I think that matters. And this is why I think I'm with you on the fact that Jamel Smith, to me, is probably your best bet there uh, from what we've seen so far to this point in the season because he's the perfect blend in the middle between a Joseph and a Maroon because he can skate with Joseph and he can play a four check game with the speed, but he can play a, a grit game with Pat Maroon as well. And I think that's, that's a perfect blend between the two. And I think that balances out that line. If you're going to put those three together, again, the contract comes into play, injuries come into play, emergency call-ups, all that factor into it. I think that's why we haven't seen more of Jamel Smith at this point this season. Um, does Ross Colton get more chances? as great as it was for him to score on his second shift in the NHL on his first career shot. Uh, he only played what six or so minutes against Dallas in his second appearance. Uh, we've only seen Barry Belay once. I wouldn't be surprised if Barry Belay gets in the lineup for one of these two games coming up against Detroit, just to kind of give him another look, but those guys aren't bottom three forwards, right? Alex Barry Belay is a top nine type of player. You have to earn that right. And it's very difficult on this team to do it but they're not your typical fourth line players. Well, and that's the thing too about Volkov. You can make the case he's in that same boat, but they've put him on the fourth line. Barry Boulay, we saw him play. Who did he play with? He He was with Gord. He was with Gord, yeah, and on a third line situation. Which was, which was interesting because you wonder what the thinking was. Is it playing with skilled guys because of his pedigree down at Syracuse? You can make the same case for Volkov if you're talking about skill set. And maybe Volkov being bigger they liked him more so on the fourth line. And Volkov's got some of that to his game. He's got, we haven't He's seen it, great. I think, much here, uh, but it, it's certainly something you talked to Stacy Roost, uh, the Syracuse general manager. Uh, I've talked to him more than a few times about that. He's got that to his game. He just hasn't shown it uh, on a consistent enough level at the NHL. And part of that is because he just doesn't have enough experience yet to get a feel for that. The other thing, too, is I wonder, and these are things probably John Cooper's not thinking about now. This is probably more just talk show, podcast, banter, but I think it's interesting to bring up. If you don't find that combination on the fourth line, do you look at it and say, all right, you know, this year we may have to win it differently. It might be more 11 and 7, not only to protect, let's say, a Kyle Foote, who might be our sixth best defenseman, but maybe it's an opportunity to make that fourth line better. You're double shifting your best players. So in other words, you're giving Braden Point an extra shift or two with Maroon and Joseph. Maybe you're giving Sorelli. Maybe you're giving Kucherov, who we think will be back and ready to go. I mean, that's another way, E, to overcome whatever you're looking for on the fourth line that you're not getting right now, 12 and 6. And if you have to end up going with, you know, double shifting some of your best players on the fourth line here and there, I don't necessarily think that's a bad play. I don't know if they'll do it. But we have seen John Cooper go 11 and 7, so maybe there is some method to the madness there. Don't be left out. Make sure you subscribe to the Lightning Insider on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else where podcasts are found. Now, here again is Eric. Problem with that, you don't have the depth on defense that you had before. Right? Like, even, even when they dress seven defensemen this year, it's a different feel than it was last year. N- number one, there's no Kevin Shattenkirk who you could, you know, you could put out there for 18, 20 minutes a night. Uh, you know, now your options as the sixth and seventh defenseman have been Luke Shannon, Cal Foot. When we saw Andreas Borgman make his team debut against the Blackhawks, 
but you don't have the depth to feel comfortable putting seven defensemen out there because if they're, if they're the same caliber of defensemen, are you really helping yourself by dressing an extra, an extra D man? If you're just getting the same thing out of no matter who's out there. So, so I, th- I think for me on that, it's a good point. It's one they're going to have to monitor, but I think this year, this is where we go back to, are you just playing Hedman and Sergachev and McDonough more? And they are. And I think that's what they may have to end up doing. And I don't, again, I don't have a problem. Again, you may have to win. E, you may have to win differently this year than you did last. We talked about, I thought last season, I think you agreed that back end was the most talented we've seen in lightning history. I think this year is comparable on the top end. The depth isn't there to your point, And I agree now in fairness, we don't know what Cal foot is going to look like at the end of the year. Correct. We're, we're hoping his steps that he takes are, are great, but we also have to account for Hedman's play being better. Sergachev, especially McDonough, who's added a little bit more offense to his game. Chernak before the injury, and hopefully it's not long-term. I think he was starting to come around and in fairness, I think Jan Ruta was starting to play better. So while you're right, the depth isn't quite where it was last year. I'm not sure it could be, to be honest with you, coming back this year. I think that was a perfect storm last year, the way they got Bogosian and Shattenkirk on you know, decent deals, and you had them motivated to play for that next contract as well. But I think this might be a year. It kind of goes back to the forward debate, E. You may have to ride your top-end guys a little bit more, not only at the forward position, but on the back end as well. Look, Chicago rode up to three cups, right? They just yeah. relied really on their top four Good point. defensemen. Um, you know, now that means you're going to play Sergachev more on the right, which he's comfortable with. We've seen him do it before. But, uh, you know, Chicago won it with uh, Charleston, Oduya, Seabrook, and Keith. I mean, those guys you're were right. playing 30, 25 minutes a night in the playoffs uh, where their third pairing was getting 10, 11 minutes a night. I mean, go back and look at that 2015 Stanley Cup final. One of those four guys was on the ice at almost – every shift <laughs> I right mean, unless they leaned on them and you can do it you can do it my concern right now is i mean victor hedman played what 26 minutes on thursday he played 29 minutes on friday he played 28 minutes today are you not that he can't handle it but are you comfortable with playing victor hedman that much on a nightly basis in a regular season it's a fair question to where all you have to do is make the playoffs and they're gonna make the playoffs sure you know, do you want to overtax those guys? And, you know, Sergachev is still learning. And, you know, I think you're comfortable with him in the 22 to 24 minute range, uh, minute range every night. You know, but we've seen McDonough's minutes as well. He only played 20 minutes on Sunday, but we've seen him up around 26 minutes a night. To me, I don't think that's ideal for the rest of this regular season. I think you have to find ways to curtail it. The problem is, is you've got to win games to make sure that you don't slip, right? And well, that's you're impossible. Right. But I, I, I wouldn't want to overtax and overburden my top guys too much. If you have to do it in the playoffs, that's a completely different situation. No, it's fair. It's a fair point. And look, I think you might've asked the question, was it a couple of games ago when we looked at the box score and was it Palat played like 10 minutes or 12 minutes? Yeah. That was the blowout game against Dallas. Right? Yeah. And you kind of asked Cooper, was that by design? I don't know how he really answered the question. If he did it all, you know, he, game, like game, management. game management, game management. Think- that's how it was. Yeah, and I think you're going to see more of that because you can't you can't take five guys out of the lineup and put five guys in. I mean, I guess theoretically you could, but I, I think it's it's harder to do now. 
maybe than it was before. So I, I guess to answer your question, and I actually asked Brian Engblom this question on the last call a couple of days ago about monitoring guys' minutes. I think you're going to have to pick your spots and, and maybe even rest a Victor Hedman late in the year, particularly when all these games are coming to the forefront. Yeah. I don't think... I don't think you can sit there and look at it. And I'm sure they know this. I'd be very surprised. Let's put it this way. I would be very surprised, assuming they're not fighting for a playoff spot, which I don't think is going to happen. If we're still seeing Victor Hedman, Ryan McDonough, and Mikhail Sergachev with five games remaining in the regular season, averaging 28 to 29 minutes a game. I think you're going to see a concerted effort to rest them. Whatever that means in today's NHL, understanding the limitations you have, resting guys and subbing them in and out yeah unfortunately it's not like baseball right where you can give them a couple of at bats and pull them for the rest you of the can't game do it. in a deep yeah. end you know it's not the nfl where you've you know got three three deep at just about every position you know you've only got so much you can work with so um it, it will be interesting to see how they do monitor all that stuff down down the stretch um you know because it, the problem is is like okay you're able to give you know, limit point to 10 minutes or pull out to 10 minutes a game because it was a blowout. It was three, nothing, what, 10 minutes into the game. Dallas didn't show enough fight to get back into it. Ends up five, nothing. You can, you can manage the minutes that way. You also have 12 forwards. You've only got 60. If you dress seven, you've got 70. It's harder to rest those guys in those situations. They're still going to have to play. Right. So it, it's, it's interesting. And, and I don't think you need more of games like that against Dallas to be able to, game managed players ice time similar to what they did last month against the stars. They haven't had many of those games where they've been comfortable from start to finish, right? Like, I mean, think about some of the hard, that Carolina four game set, those were hard minutes. I think this, this weekend set against Chicago, those were hard minutes. I mean, twice they had to come back down from multi-goal deficits to win the game. Um, you know, the, the series against Florida, they, the Panthers came at them hard um, you know, you've got a couple here against Detroit. We'll see how that pans out. But guess what? The Red Wings, even though there hasn't been a lot of success for the Red Wings against Tampa Bay over the past six or seven years, they still play the Lightning hard. I mean, there's been some games that have been close. The Lightning have pulled it out in a shootout or gone to overtime, whatever it is. They haven't had a whole lot of comfortable games. You need more of those to give those guys some minutes. Maybe if you're late April and you're comfortable in a position – you know, you can manage it differently by then. But I think between now and, and that point, I, I, I think you're, you're just going to have to hope that maybe you get some of those blowout, blowout games. And even when you do, I guarantee you, Victor Hedman's still playing 22 minutes a night. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, a, fair, it's a fair point. And I don't know if you, you give this time. He, like, my thing is, you know what you have in Luke Shen. And barring some injuries or him not playing for three weeks and you want to get him in just to keep him sharp, I'd actually like to see Cal foot play and see what he has. And I actually like to see Borgman play. I mean, he's 25 years old and he can skate. I have no idea if he's going to be ready for this team come playoff time, but you know what I can do? I can give him some more games during the stretch to see what he can do. And I understand roots is out right now. And I understand Chernak took a vicious blow uh, in that last game against Chicago. So we don't know what their health situation is. And obviously by default, he may be playing regardless, but even if everybody is healthy, I would actually look to get Borgman in a little bit more than Shen because I know what I have in Shen. And I'm comfortable if, if Shen is your seventh defenseman, and that's fine. But Borgman can skate. And if he can alleviate some of the minutes from somebody else just a bit, then let's see what he can do. Either that or you go out and get somebody. And that becomes a little trickier. 
Well, and I think that's maybe that's some of the motivation from his appearance for the first time this year against Chicago, because at some point you do have to see what you have. You have to see what he can do. You know, it's been three years since he played in an NHL game when he was with the Maple Leafs. You know, he's played in the AHL for a couple of years. And then he started the year, I think, over in Finland uh, playing in the Finnish Elite League. Yeah. So, yeah, you have to you have to see what he is. And, and the good news is, is that, you know, he was asked after the game if he's comfortable on the right side. And he said, actually, in training camp with St. Louis last year, he was primarily on the right side. So that's a good sign that there's if you have to move him over to the right, that you can, because we know how much this coaching staff likes their righty lefty balance might not be possible at the minute um, because of, uh, you know, Ruta's missed the last two games. Uh, John Cooper said it wasn't expected to be a long-term thing. Uh, we'll see what this week brings against Detroit. And now you have to have concerns about Eric Turnett because he took a vicious hit from Connor Murphy, uh, a hit that certainly got the attention of player safety, or at least the officials on the ice that's going to get the attention of player safety because it was a five-minute major and a match, and a match you know is intent to injure. It's and a that's point. an automatic suspension pending a release. Can we get into this for a second? We don't have to spend a ton of time. I know we want to get to some questions. I, I, I was thinking about this today. I think it's a fair point, but I, I want you to chime in and I want our audience to as well. We have seen hits to the head pretty frequently. Would you agree? For as much as the, the league is trying to... Too many. Right. I mean, you feel like the league has made a point to eliminate it out of the game. It's odd that we keep seeing, what, seeing it as frequently as possible, which to me, e, there are two reasons why and only two. Either it is impossible for these players to determine that split second if it's a hit to the head or not. In other words, it's, it's too hard for the players to differentiate for the most part, because I think the Tom Wilson one was pretty egregious. But for the most part, it's either the players are having a hard time recognizing and adjusting to hits to the head because things are moving too fast. Or there is a complete lack of respect for one another on the ice. Both of them aren't good. I'll say this. Both of them aren't good because if the players are having a hard time adjusting and understanding what is legal and what's not, there is a problem either with the communication, there's a problem with being taught how to hit, there's there's a breakdown somewhere from that standpoint. The other part is probably more concerning, that there is such a lack of respect for the guy you're playing against that you're willing to go headhunting even when the league is coming down on this more so than ever, especially with the concussion issues we've seen, not only in the NHL and the lawsuits filed by players who have issues with their brain when they're done playing, but also in the NFL and the lawsuits that we've seen with Addy. Either one is not good. But to me, those are the only two logical conclusions for why we keep seeing these brutal hits to the head. Am I wrong? Is there a third reason? I'll give you my thoughts on it. Uh, to the first point about is the game too fast now? The players can't judge it. No, that's not the case. In, in so many um, conversations I've had with players through the year, and we, we hear this phrase used a lot by players and coaches, the game slows down for you. 
well, that's not just and when you have the puck on your stick in reading situations. It's also when reading those situations. And there are some that are, are bang, bang plays. Like there's so much of this game that is instantaneous reaction and decision-making. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. When it comes to these hits and the one by Tom Wilson, I cannot believe that anybody defended that hit in any capacity whatsoever, whether you're a teammate of his, a coach of his, or a, a member of the national media. How Frank anybody... Cervelli did. Did you read his comments? Frank Cervelli from TSN. I'm not, I'm not I... pointing him out because I want to yeah. come down on him. I happened to see it on Twitter and it was an interesting comment that he made. I guess says that this is going to be an unpopular opinion, but yeah, that yeah. wasn't an illegal. I'm paraphrasing. That wasn't an illegal hit, and I mean, I I kind of had to read it twice, and I said, really, what what part of that did you think was legal? And this is the gray area we get into when looking at these hits, because there are people who will tell you, just like Frank did, and and Frank, I'm I'm you know I know Frank. He he didn't go out on a limb on his own. He he felt that came from somewhere and somewhere in the past. And I and I've seen Frank do this before on another another similar hit. It might even have involved Wilson at some point where it was a similar hit. And he said that this is going to be unpopular, but look at this, look at this, and look at this. And he was right because what and I'm not I, I don't remember if it was Wilson or not, but player safety looked at it the same way and said that this is the correct view. And he, they weren't quoting Frank or anything like that, but it was just comparing those two viewpoints. So yeah. again, Frank is not going out on a limb all by himself on that. Uh, but in this situation, it was a predatory hit. It was a player who was not necessarily engaged with another player, but he's not in a situation where he's ex he should be ex expecting to get hit. And here's the other part of the first part of your conversation the players can continue to get away with these type of hits because I don't think the penalties are severe enough. I mean, we're talking about Tom Wilson who already was hit with a 15 games. Actually it was a 20 game suspension just a couple of years ago. It got reduced. I think to 14 games where they took six games off of it. Even that apparently wasn't a severe enough punishment because there have been enough times where a guy like Tom Wilson has delivered a hit and the league has let him off the hook. So why would he have to, why would he think in his mind, would he have to curb hit the way he plays? You know, it's, it's similar to Matt Cook, right? And you're familiar with Matt Cook from your days in Pittsburgh and his days with the Penguins. What did it take for Matt Cook to kind of get his attention to stop doing these dirty hits like that? It took yeah, being suspended for the rest of the regular season. Yeah, right. And he missed that entire first round playoffs against the lightning in 2011 a series in which the Penguins were already also without Evgeny Malkin and Sidney Crosby. Yeah, that's a good point. I think so it was he Horton, really right? hurt his team. I think that was Nathan Ward. Was it him or was it Brad Richards? I think it might have been the hit he leveled on Brad Richards. Could be. Because I, I want to say one of those guys never played again. <laughs> it might have been Horton. Well, but I, you might be right. You might be right. I'm going I'm to double check on that I, while we're talking here. I, I think it was uh, Matt Cook who also delivered the hit on Mark Savard, correct? Yeah, maybe that, that's who I'm thinking. Yes. I think that's who you're thinking of. Yes. Yes. So if you that's exactly if you don't dole out the proper punishment, I mean, just look at these two vicious slew foots we've seen already this week. The one that Jacob Slavin de delivered, and I forget who it was against. That was as blatant as a slew foot as you're going to find. I mean, that was direct intent to injure. And not only does he not get penalized for it. He gets hit with a $5,000 suspension. 
Well, I agree with you there. I, I think you're you're spot on that the penalty needs to be harsher. But what does it say for a guy who's willing to do that though to another player? Forget about the lack of a of a penalty that may come from that, which is a big deal. Well, and I think you're right. And I think you need to nail these guys, not only take away the games. I, I think you can have an interesting conversation, say you're not coming back until that player you injured comes back. So could you imagine if you knocked a player out for his career? That opens up a whole can, can of worms. Yeah, it does. But I mean, you, if you really want to to get this under control, but he, what does it say about the league where a guy thinks it's okay to do that? Here's, here's the other point. And you heard it today from Pierre Maguire where he said the phrase and, and Connor, the hit Connor Murphy delivered on Eric, Eric Chernak. I'll go to bat for Connor Murphy. He's not a dirty player. I don't care. I don't care what his reputation was before. He delivered a bad hit. There's, we, we tend to focus so much on the player who delivered the hit. We don't think about the player who took the brunt of it and what it means to them. And that's where I think some of the lack of respect comes from because let's face it. What was everybody talking about when the Tom Wilson suspension came down for seven games? Is he going to appeal it? Is the NHL, the NHLPA is going to quote unquote go to bat for Tom Wilson to try and get the suspension reduced. So he ended up not appealing it. Uh, because they, he, he wasn't going to win it anyway. He's too much of a repeat offender uh, to get away with it again. Um, but th- there, there's too much focus on trying to help the player who delivered the hit rather than the, the player who took the brunt of the hit and may miss time. And we don't know. I, I mean, was Brandon Carlo went to the hospital? He went to the hospital and Tom Wilson was not even penalized on the ice. You have Peter Laviolette, and I understand you're sticking up for your guy, and I don't like that either. But we saw this a couple of years ago where Patrice Bergeron tried to stand up, I think, for Brad Marchand or, or tried to say Brad Marchand needs to stop this. And it was Patrice Bergeron yeah, that right. got admonished by people. How can he do that? That's his teammate. He just threw his teammate under the bus. No, it was the right thing to do, but he got admonished for it. So yeah. I think that's where some of the lack of respect comes from is that we, we don't focus too much on the guy who's going to miss time we focus too much on the guy. Well, he's not a dirty player. Well, listen, I think you and I both agree that there needs to be a mindset that has to change, whether it's from the players, which I think has to happen, but also from the league. You need to do a better job of protecting the players who get hit illegally. The other thing too is, and I'll end on this, and I know we want to get to some questions. Phil Esposito says a big reason why you're seeing a lot of these injuries, the pads. Yeah. The the equipment these guys have on. I don't yeah, yeah, I don't I don't know if they would look at that. I understand the protection involved, but I mean, Phil, you know, you've had these conversations with him. Yep. I mean, it's almost like he's dumbfounded. These guys are basically wearing these shoulder pads that are like football players. And you level somebody with their head down, the impact is tremendous. I The NHL is still so far behind on what makes sense when it comes to player safety. I, I've told you this before. The fact that you allow fighting in the league still, if you're really trying to cut down on the hits to the head, because some of those fights end up, the guy falls on top of one another. Why are you taking that unnecessary risk if you really want to crack down on hits to the head? So I, I feel like the league doesn't know where to go. It wants to still be a physical sport and actually play over the line while at the same time protecting the players. And it's either got to be one or the other. I don't think you can have it in between. Either you just be the league and say, this is this is the sport we live in. It's going to be physical, and it's going to be nasty, and guys are going to get hurt, 
but that's why they get paid millions of dollars. Or you go the other way and say, listen, we're cracking down on everything. You cannot do any of these hits the head. If you do, it's a major fine and it's a major suspension. It almost has to be extreme because I think they're caught in this weird position of trying to do both. And I think it's actually made it worse. They need to, in my opinion, adopt what the IIHF does. And if anybody's watched the World Juniors or World Championships when they've been on TV, any head contact is an automatic ejection pending a review. And I like the fact that the league now, like they reviewed the Connor Murphy hit. They saw it live and the game is fast. It's hard to judge at real speed sometimes. So they made the ruling on the ice that it's a major and they go back and review it. And then that is upheld. The double IHF works similar and it's international ice hockey federation. If there's head contact in any capacity, legal or not, you are, it is, you can review it and you can eject the player from the game. And so you can review it. You can it, review it. It can be reviewed. Yeah. Right. Um, but at any, any head contact whatsoever is an automatic review by the IIHF governing board. And I they, feel like you do that in college football, correct? Um, well, yeah, there's, there's head, an ejection. They yeah. They it's can eject ejection. the player and they can review it, uh, but yeah. there's no suspension in this case, you know, right. because we've seen this. As a matter of fact, I think with Nolan foot, I don't if I remember this right. I think Nolan Foote got ejected for that in one game for Team Canada uh, two years ago, uh, and I think he actually had to sit out the next game because they they viewed it as a suspension. The Double IHF takes headshots yeah. very seriously. I think the NHL probably has some work to do when it comes to that because there's too much. And as we've mentioned before, the players are the product. And uh, I mean, look at the number of games Sidney Crosby's missed in his career. I mean, the hit that he took in the Winter Classic a number of years ago was as dirty as they come. And there was nothing. There was no retribution. There was no the penalty. Face, there was nothing. The face David, of the league. David Steckel? Yeah, David Steckel. The face of the league. Generational yep. type talent. And you can make a case they've done a poor job protecting their star players. Again, it's almost like the NHL is successful in spite of themselves. And that's, I think, another example. You, any other sport, you're protecting your star players. Yep, I agree. All right, before we uh, close this out with uh, a few questions here, we're going to make sure we take care of our sponsor, uh, manscaped.com. Again, make sure you're using the promo code, uh, code BOLTS. You get 20% off and free shipping on anything you order on there. Uh, we've talked about it, the cologne. I use a cologne a lot now, uh, and I'm not usually a cologne wearer, but I use that because I do like the way. You like it? You it, like how you it, smell? It presents me as I just walk down the street or in the arena or whatever it is i it just it gives me an air of an air it makes you want to just walk around with no clothes on i'll say it out loud i will not go that far well i will because that's you know look if i do that that means that you know i'm also using everything else that they provide and i am i am looking i am trim in many ways looking like i am just ready to you know do whatever Yep, it's great stuff. It's great products. Check them out, manscaped.com. Again, use the promo code BOLTS for 20% off and free shipping on any order that you have. Check out their great line of products. All right, let's get to these questions because we got a couple of good ones. Yes, we do. Uh, from Stephanie, uh, with all the injuries, do they have enough depth on def defense to keep the penalty kill solid or will Julian Breezeball need to try and find a bargain at the trade deadline? 
Uh, I mean, the PK has been great. Um, I have a story up on lightninginsider.com if anybody wants to check it out. Uh, a big part of their success on the PK this year is because of the consistency they've had with their, their parents, right? Whether it's Barclay Goodrow and Blake Coleman or Alex Colon, Anthony Sorelli, same thing on defense. It's basically the same 10 guys that kill penalties. That's been a big part of their success. Well, we don't know how long Eric Chernak is going to be out. Jan Ruda has taken his spot when Chernak's not there to get some PK time. Yeah. Do the team have the depth to withstand that right now if it's long-term? They do. Well, if on the PK, because you have other guys that can step in. But in terms of overall depth beyond that, I've said it before. I think they have to try and find some defensive depth when you get to the trade line, trade deadline, assuming that you've got the cap space to do it, and they'll have some. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think – look, guys, I, I do. I think there's a real certainty – not certainty, but there's a real possibility that – they can't find somebody because of cap issues to come in and be a seventh or eighth defenseman and that they're going to ride the horses that got them here. Basically, as you said, a good comparison to the Blackhawks teams that won cups, basically going with four defensemen. I think their PKs are really good. Your best PK is Andre Vasilevsky. I think as long as he's solid in net, you're going to have a fighting chance. Don't take penalties too. That's going to be another thing. I think they stress to, help that back end and their penalty killers be a little smarter too. And we'll see if that plays out because of how many games these teams are going to be playing. Fatigue is going to start to set in. So you wonder if we start to see some sloppy hockey from that standpoint and if special teams really start to break down, but it's almost a two part question. I do think he's going to try and make a move to address depth, but I think in many ways you're kind of hamstrung with what you can actually do because of the cap. Yep. Uh, from Al, uh, Al says he's not a fan of the shootout. Would rather have the game decided in three-on-three overtime until someone scores. Lead the skills competition to the All-Star game. Wondering your and Greg's opinion. Uh, I've never been a fan of the shootout. I understand the entertainment value of it. Uh, it's hard to dismiss that when you see everybody when there are fans in the stands uh, on their feet during a shootout. So there is an entertainment value to it in terms of deciding the outcome of games. I mean, this decided a playoff spot a couple of years ago between the Flyers and the Rangers. I think it was the year that actually the Flyers made it to the Stanley Cup final. It was because the Flyers won a last day shootout against the Rangers that they made the playoffs and the Rangers did not. I don't want a playoff spot being decided by a shootout. I don't like it. Uh, I don't no. think you're going to get the league to agree to longer three on three because it's taxing no. on the players as it is. I wouldn't have minded 10 minutes of four on four before we get to an overtime, but here we are with the three on three monster now. Um, uh, I prefer that to be decided or just give me ties. I never had a problem with ties or go to three, two, one situation. In terms of you know, it's, it, it would require some thinking outside the box because as much as we hate shootouts and I agree with you, you know what I hate more? Size. nobody being declared a winner and so that is my biggest problem so you know what you could get gimmicky you could almost do something like what college football does maybe after five on maybe after five minutes of three on three if nobody scores do you maybe give teams two minutes on a four on three power play each team gets an opportunity to score on the power play uh you know, you, you kind of make, now that's that's gimmicky but e how many years have we had the shootout? <clears throat> Too many. Right. So I agree with you. The biggest picture is you're not going to overextend these players. You can't do yeah. it. So I, I look as much as I want to see seven minutes of 
you know, three on three hockey, we know coaches ruin everything. And there's some coaches <laughs> that really make it boring at times, which is just, you know, what we saw in Chicago the other day doesn't always happen. So I would say max, you extend the three on three to seven minutes. After that, I actually might go a little gimmicky and maybe give each team an opportunity to try and score five on three with one minute to work with. And you kind of go from there. I don't like the shootouts, but I really don't like games that are tied. So I need to find a way to have that game end. And I'm running out of options because I don't want to overextend these players too much. I'll say this. The most popular sport in the world survives with ties. I think any sport can survive it. Uh, from Bolts fan 18, uh, we kind of got into this already, but uh, how much leeway does the current fourth line get? They were brutal the last two games, but I know Cooper's options are limited by the salary cap and waiver consideration. I think we touched on that yeah, we uh, did pretty well in the conversation yeah. uh, from our friend Prezemic. Uh, could you see Alex Barbele or Ross Colton, preferably Boulay, getting more ice time? I'd cut Volkov right now because I think the game dropped a bit. Even Maroon looks better offensively. I think you're going to see Boulay get another game. Uh, I think he earned it. I was surprised that Colton was the first one to get his second opportunity over Alex Barbele, but I think Barbele probably looked better as a whole in his performance, and he did it on the road against a fast team like Carolina. Uh, I think he's going to get another opportunity and then they'll just let it play out. I don't think these two guys are here the rest of the year. I think they're here to get a look. I think they're here to get a taste. And it's obviously a different situation with the AHL this year. Uh, but Syracuse has struggled without those two guys in particular because they're two of their top forwards. Uh, I don't even know if the AHL is going to have playoffs this year. So I don't know how much that even matters. Maybe they don't even have, they feel they have anything else to prove at the AHL level, especially Barry Belay in particular. But I would be surprised if both those guys are here the rest of the year. At some point, I think they're both going to get back and get some playing time, at least get some playing time in Syracuse because Barry Belay's played one game in two weeks and Colton's played two. I think the question we need to ask, in addition to what you just posed, if Jamel Smith didn't have cap issues for this team, would he be playing regularly? Yes, he would. We don't know that. I'm assuming he would. I know that he would be. Okay, so maybe we've answered our question. Is it reasonable to assume then when playoffs begin, if they choose to go 12 and six, he's one of their 12 forwards. Depends because then, the, de- then the debate is over. Well, it depends on how Mitchell Stevens comes back because it was his job to lose. See, I, I you and well, I, I'm not going to speak for you. I, I told you, I, I think they were willing to give him a shot. And I think they still will be because he only played three games before he was injured. But how much of that, though, too, because the cap situation didn't change for Jamel Smith at the beginning there when Stevens was playing that it was now, correct? Or did it? It did not. Okay. I didn't see anything from Stevens to warrant he has a regular spot in this lineup. I'm being very blunt on that. It doesn't mean I don't like him as a player. And I won't argue with you. I will not argue with you on that. Yeah. I I think I don't think he showed anything in those three games. Uh, Okay. So we we agree on that. So when he comes back... Maybe he gets maybe he gets an opportunity to play because of the contract, but he, I don't think it's about performance. No, he he will get an opportunity because of, you know you you shouldn't lose your your position to an injury, and unless you're Wally Pip, unless you're Wally Pip, um, you, you know, you, and this is a severe injury that he's going to come back from. He had surgery. That was a revelation that John Cooper let slip a few weeks back, so he's out 
I think it was a two month situation minimum before he's ready to come back. So it, it'll be a while still, I think another month before we have to have this debate again, but I, I don't think Mitchell Stevens uh, supplanted himself by any stretch of the imagination, but he's going to be given the opportunity because he showed spurts of it towards the tail end of last year. He showed spurts of it in the postseason. Uh, so they're going to give him the opportunity to see if he can win that position. But I, I do agree with the fact that I think mean, Jamel Smith is the best fourth line. Do you right think, He's just what, it, I, I think that's, and I'm not saying that your thinking for their thinking is wrong. I, I'm, I'm stunned because I think every time Smith has played over the last two years, he's played well. I agree. They've made that type of decision already that Stevens is that further along than Smith. Cause essentially that's what we're saying here. I don't buy that. I don't buy that for one minute. I, maybe, I think it's a long-term picture with Steven. Yeah, but, and you're, you, I, I don't want to, I'm not debating you. I'm debating the, the right. argument. Smith isn't that old. No, he's 26. And I'm, if you're Smith, you've got to wonder, all right, I'm young. I have a lot of NHL experience, relatively speaking. Is it because Stevens was drafted by the team and I wasn't? Then that tells me a little something. Is that one of the reasons why Volkov is getting more of the opportunities too? draft pick? And well, again, I talk about the contract and that, that makes yeah, sense. I think the contact contract factor is in this year more than any year because they're already capped tight. Yeah. I mean, we, we've been over that. The Kucherov situation changed everything that they could do because of his injury. But the only reason Jamel Smith, I don't think is getting more playing time right now is because of the contract and because he would have to go on waivers. The time will tell once the playoffs start, I, I will be intrigued to see what they do. And it could be, it could be a revolving door, too. Yeah, it could be. Uh, from Sharon, any Kucherov update? Uh, there's no particular update. The next thing, again, we have to look for in his rehab situation. And again, because of COVID, we can't be in the locker room area. We don't get a chance to see Nikita Kucherov even walking down the hallway, as we typically do with players who are injured like that. So all we can do is just occasionally ask the question, of John Cooper, or if we ever get, um, you know, the rare times we get full availability with Julian Brisebois, which should be coming up soon. We're close to the halfway point. It usually gives a midway point update, but uh, you're not going to get into Nikita Kucherov update till we see him on the ice. Yeah, that's, that's and that's right. and again, it was it was a four to five month recovery. It's what were two months, a little over two months into that recovery, so he's still a ways off. I'm trying to come back, um, but he is around the team. We do know that we, you know, we, we ask, you know, John Cooper says he's, he sees them almost every day while they're at home. So he's around at least. And, you know, uh, his, his smiling face, uh, non-parade smiling face uh, for Nikita Kucherov is around with the team. Uh, and for some reason here, Greg, Nancy asked me about Scott Wedgwood shutout performance with 40 saves over Boston today. I'll be honest. I didn't catch much of that game. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't have much to add outside of sometimes an average goaltender can play out of his mind. <laughs> I mean, Scott Wedgwood I, has I don't want to read too much into it. Shutouts. What's that? I say Scott Wedgwood has two starts this year. He should, he's got shutouts in both his starts. Well, look, I mean, kudos to him. I, I mean, I, I just I don't know what to make of of that outside of he he got really hot at the right time. <laughs> Is he the? Uh, the long-term answer there, or is he going to get more starts? I don't know. I mean, look, when you pitch two shutouts like that and two starts, you would think you'd get grab the attention of the head coach, but I, I don't I don't know what else to say outside of is it just, you know, a goaltender getting hot? We'll see. Jersey needs it because they're falling behind in a very, very competitive 
Eastern Division. Uh, all right, uh, busy schedule here coming up for the Lightning again. You got three more games this week. You're at Detroit on Tuesday. They're at Detroit on Thursday. They come home on the 13th against Nashville. The first time they'll have uh, more than 500 fans in the stands. It'll be interesting for that game. Uh, Greg, I would expect that we'll be back here in another week doing this same thing in between games uh, as they have a two-game set against Nashville on Saturday and Monday. As usual, my friend, this was a great conversation, great topics. Uh, good to talk to you again, and I look forward to it next week. You too, buddy. Hope everybody enjoyed it. Keep those questions coming. Yeah, make sure you hit subscribe. Make sure you hit like. Make sure you share. Make sure you leave a five-star reviews for us. They do mean a lot. Make sure you manscape all right, we'll be back with another LightningInsider.com podcast next week. Go in. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.